Gary DePaul with Unlabeled Leadership. Welcome to episode 55, Eliad Gregorius Leverages Non-Negotiable Habits for Happiness. Here's a shout out to listeners in Seoul, Korea, and in Tennessee in Mount Juliet and Mountain City. With that, let's get started. Is happiness really a choice? If you talk to Eliab, he would say so. In fact, he says as his motto, happiness is a choice. Through his speaking engagements, his clients, his colleagues, and even within his family, he has a goal to make the world a better and happier place. Which reminds me of Roger Kaufman, who believed that every action you take is either contributing towards or against society. Eliot exemplifies his mission, whether it's through his clinical psychologist in his earlier days, or his articles that he published in Huffington Post and Thrive Global, or even as the president of the Happiness Center, and as you'll soon find out, as a soccer coach, he thrives and strives towards this mission with his heart. And when I talked to him, he said, he speaks from the heart, and I believe it. Do you want to build better relationships, have better health, have better working conditions? Then choose happiness. The trick, though, is learning how to choose happiness and what those actions involve. I think in this area, we could learn a lot from Elia. Part one, be of service. If you read my leadership books, you'll quickly find out that leadership is not about you. What it is about is you helping other people develop their mental and moral qualities, capabilities, and behaviors, putting it in simpler terms, helping people build character. Of course, leadership is bi-directional, meaning that by doing it, you're helping yourself develop your character and build those mental and moral qualities, capabilities, and behaviors. In a sense, this is what Eliah talks about in his first story. And he shares a lesson well-learned and well-practiced. Here's Eliah. There have been many people throughout my life that have shared their wisdom and their knowledge with me and uh, that have been impactful. But the earliest memory that I have that I think probably set the stage and, and set some very deep roots in my soul and in my being came when I was five years old. And my grandfather, Elia, whose name I carry and I honor, shared something with me that was so profound that it changed my life. He died soon after that. So I don't have a lot of memories of my grandfather. This was when I was growing up in Greece. So this was in Greek. So the translation basically is the following. You know, he sat me down. Now imagine this, a five-year-old little boy, right? And he said, my boy, if you want to be successful in life, if you want to be happy in life, all you need to do is do something good for somebody else every single day, and you will be the richest man on this earth, unquote. Now, for some reason, in my little five-year little brain, it clicked. Basically, do something good for somebody else every day, and you'll be the richest man. To a five-year-old, the richest man would mean you know, maybe uh, material things. But what my grandfather was saying is, when you serve somebody else, when you, there's an act of kindness in your heart, and you do it on a consistent basis, that you will be a rich man. And he meant it you know, on an emotional and spiritual level. And I started striving to do that as early as I can remember, helping somebody else, paying them a compliment, even when I was a little kid. 
when we moved to the United States and was just starting middle school, which is not an easy transition to make. And, you know, I had a difficult name and I was painfully shy and so on. Growing up in Santa Monica, Southern California, somehow kids would open up to me, both boys and girls, you know, in seventh grade. I don't know how I was able to help them. It was basically common sense or maybe just a listening ear, which sometimes is the ultimate gift. You know, the best communicators in life are the ones that talk less and listen more. And I was able to help them. And that almost set the stage of becoming a psychologist. I didn't even know the word psychology, that you could actually make money and, and actually help people by listening to their problems and hopefully offering them some uh, tools and some solutions. In both of my books, the last chapter, you know, the seven paths to lasting happiness, the last chapter is be of service. And the most recent book, Seven Keys to Navigating a Crisis, is kindness. So I always end both my talks and my books with that lesson that I learned from my grandpa when I was five years old, five decades ago. Happy people by nature, because their batteries are full and they practice self-care, they naturally help other people. On the flip side, when we perform acts of kindness and acts of service, something happens to us on the inside. It's that warm feeling. It's, a, it's that inner reward. And that enriches our lives. With what your grandfather said, having that consistency, it seems to be a way of building character and continuing to develop it. That coupled with your capabilities of listening to other kids, you know, when you were in middle school, those two things seems to complement one another to really develop what you do and how you interact with others. I think it kind of happened organically. Yeah. Like I didn't think about it. Oh, you should be a good listener or you should do kind of thing. It just kind of evolved. It just clicked. When something clicks, you hear something and you recognize it's truth with a capital T. I think my five-year little brain and little soul somehow captured what my grandpa was trying to say. And really, that's kind of like the last memory I had of him because he died when I was six. So I don't remember a lot from him, but I certainly remember that. And I'm very grateful to him for planting those seeds to a young person. This is a powerful message. And yet so simple. <laughs> and yet so simple. Part two, the emotional aspect of momentum. Have you ever gone through life without momentum? Where the simplest tasks, they seem impossible. Small problems look enormous and your morale is low. And your future just doesn't look that promising. But when you do have momentum, the small things don't bother you. In fact, they're not even problems. The problems you do have, they don't seem insurmountable. They seem like there's a path, there's a way to get through them. And your future, your future looks positive. There's a linkage between emotion and momentum. And with the right emotional state, you can build momentum. To be candid, I don't fully understand momentum. I get it. I've seen it happen. I see it in sports when it does happen. But speaking of sports, here's a story that Elias shares that's sports-related. It's a story that illustrates the linkage between emotion and momentum. Here's Elias. When I was coaching my youngest son in their soccer, I was coaching their soccer team with another coach. And the other coach was doing all the technical stuff. And I was more the, like the sports psychologist. I would work on their mental and emotional aspect of the game. We had a very loaded team. We had a very good team. We were the defending champions. And going into the new season, we felt very confident that we're a good team. The first game coincided with the football season. So our two top players, actually, one of them was a quarterback. They didn't play so because they, were, they had their football obligations. And we played a team that had, I would say, very poor sportsmanship. They were aggressive. 
they were uh, vulgar and they ended up beating us two to nothing and they were condescending and they were just like very poor sportsmanship and that kind of rubbed all of us the, you know the wrong way the rest of the season we won every single game and their last game of the season was the game in our home court with that same team and they were undefeated up to that point so the only way for us to beat them and, and to win the championship is obviously we have to win not only beat them but beat them by a greater score than two to nothing but we had our, all our players were there. So we had a full stack. The whole team was there. So we started the first half. I mean, I built them up. I pumped them up. They hadn't forgotten how poorly they were treated by that team. So the boys were already hyped up. And we start the game. And at halftime, the score is two to nothing in our favor, which was exactly the same score that we had lost. My friend, the coach is strategizing and, you know, talking all that stuff. And I'm listening. Just before the second half started, I pulled my team aside. I said, listen. If nothing else happens the rest of the second half and we beat this team two to nothing, we will be co-champions. We lost two to nothing to them in the first game. We beat them two to nothing today and we're co-champions. How do you guys feel about that? And they were kind of mumbling. I said, or we can go out in the second half and really kick their butts. They got out there. They were so inspired. We beat them six to one. Oh, wow. And claimed the full championship to ourselves. It's a simple story, but you know, leadership is about inspiring and connecting the emotional aspect. Now, we're talking about kids, but think about leaders of organizations or corporations that truly inspire their workforce. How do they do that? There's something that happens on an emotional level. I could have said, you know, you guys are doing great. We're winning. Keep going. La, rah, 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 rah. But I gave them a choice. I said, do you want to be co-champions or do you want to be champions? And of course, they all started screaming, champion, champion. I'm like, well, okay, then go out there and prove it. Two to nothing. The first half became a six to one final score. We destroyed that other team. How does that apply in our own lives? Are we just going through the motions or are we just like truly inspired and passionate about what we're doing? Those kids, even though it was at the end of the season, it was the last half of, this, of the last game, they gave it all on the field, man. They just played. I've never seen them play better than they did for those 30 minutes. There's an emotional aspect to it. It started triggering memories of some psychological studies or neurological studies where people have had their emotional capacity short-circuited, so to speak. It's been so long, I can't remember the details, but they weren't able to make decisions. They had a terrible time getting along and making choices. Thinking of that and what you're saying, I think it's so true that inspiration is an emotional experience that people who are leading can really tap into. Yeah. And, you know, I hadn't even planned on it. It kind of kind of came out of my mouth. I hadn't planned on asking, do you want to be co-champions or do you want to be champions? But when those words came out, their eyes got so big. They were all, you know, looking at me in unison and like, no, we want to be champions. And I'm like, well, go out there and prove it. <laughs> and I did no strategy about the game, not play better defense or score, nothing. They were so hyped up on such an emotional level that that destroyed the other team. They, I, I'm telling you. And it was such a pleasure to watch them have fun and be totally engaged and being in the present. Obviously, the other team, their sportsmanship was still poor afterwards. They couldn't believe they got trounced and were very reluctant to congratulate us. But, you know, it didn't really matter because our kids were happy. We took yeah. them up for ice cream afterwards. But it goes to show you the power when you connect to that emotional component when we go to work, are we inspired like that? Or are we just going through the motions? When we pull into the parking lot before we go into the building, do we leave our hearts and our minds in the car and become like zombies kind of going through the motions for eight hours, eight, nine, 10 hours, then get back in the car? Or are we fully engaged? And I guess that's the question for leadership. Are your folks fully engaged? And if they're not, what are you doing about it? 
It's one thing to inspire other people, but you choose the attitudes, you choose the approach you have when you're in that parking lot parking. Do you go in with the right mindset? And whatever that mindset is, it's going to affect your whole day. And you know something else on a personal level, and I can't take credit for this, but I, I read this when I was really young, when I was a young father. It was an article about specifically talking about dads. When you come home from work, before you walk into the house, what energy are you bringing? If you've had a, a rough day at work and you're frustrated and you're mad or angry or just, you know, just agitated, guess what? When you walk through those doors and your spouse and your kids are waiting for daddy's home and all that stuff, you're going to bring that energy, that negative energy to your home, which will have the impact the rest of the evening as a result of that. The author of, that, of this article basically was saying, if you're not in a good place, don't get out of the car. Stay in the garage until you can shift and pivot and clear your head and clear your heart and walk into your home. I'm assuming these are the most important people in our lives, right? Our families, our spouse, our kids, and so on. Walk into this home with a positive and uplifting attitude because that energy will permeate the rest of the evening. And that when you sit in the car in your garage or in, in, right in front of your apartment, your home, you sit at choice. And the choice is, am I going to walk in there grumpy or am I going to take some time to meditate, to clear, to, you know, and, and walk in there with a positive attitude and therefore impact and influence the energy in my home? I've never forgotten that article because it just resonated with me. Who's going to walk through that door? Same as you do in the morning when you go to work, who's going to walk through that door to your office? The same is true when you come home in the evening. Part three, call to action and self-assessment. There are a handful of cognitive strategies of learning. This includes chunking, building frames, conceptual maps, advanced organizers, using metaphors, analogies, similes, rehearsal, imagery, and of course, mnemonics. But there's other things that you can do to increase your learning. And Aliyah shares with you some things that you can do in particular. Here's Aliyah again. Knowledge without application is just education. In other words, you can go out there and read the top 10 books on Amazon on happiness and highlight them and underline them to death. And when you're done, what do we usually do with the books when we're done? We put them back on the bookshelf, never to be seen again. So now we're more knowledgeable about happiness, but we're not any happier. As a matter of fact, I think we're actually more frustrated because we do know, you know what happiness looks like and we've read all about it, but our lives haven't really changed. And why is that? In life, that includes happiness in every other aspect of our lives. It doesn't matter what we know. What truly matters, what do we do with what we know? It's to take action. That's where the magic really happens. If I read your book, The Seven Keys of Navigating a Crisis, and I just take it in as entertainment, then it's a waste. At the end of your chapters, you actually give the readers an opportunity to think about, reflect, and put it into practice what they just experienced in that chapter. In every talk that I give and in every seminar that I run or webinar or, or what have you, there's always a call to action at the end. Because, you know, there are a lot of great speakers out there that you laugh and make you cry. And it's like this education, you know, there's some education, some entertainment. It's a mix of the two. They come in, they're keynote, they collect the money, they take off. And people have, oh, that was great. I had a great one or two hours. And then Monday, you go back to business as usual. Well, that's not transformative. That's not how I do it. I want people not only to walk away and say that was thought provoking, but more importantly, to change even one habit. You know, those atomic habits, right? If you change 1% of your behavior today, but you do it consistently for 365 days, you're going to be a whole different place a year from now. 
there's a good habit in what you just said, and that is the call to action. With anything you read, with a meeting, with whatever experience, if you think at the end and use some reflective time and say, okay, what's my call to action? What did I get out of that experience? Doing that a little bit more than what you may normally do, like you said, it can make a huge effect on how you learn and develop from those experiences. We're not talking about changing our whole personality. Yeah. I'll give you a very simple example. Up until last March or April, I used to walk like three days a week for an hour. It's time, you know, three miles. I'm getting older. Movement is good for me. It makes me it's healthier and so on. Well, guess what? When the pandemic hit, as my own stress level went up, taking care of my family, my extended family, friends, patients, clients, and so on, I needed to change and upgrade my own self-care. So I started walking every single day, seven days a week for a mile a day, come rain, shine, snow, whatever. Initially, when I used to walk three days a week, that was something that I, I had to do because of my age and my health. When I started walking every day, it became this habit, became something that I, I want to do. And it became a non-negotiable. Now we're in April of 2021. I've been walking for a whole year every single day because I want to do. And it's not only what it's done for me physically. It's what it's done for me emotionally and mentally. Being outside, blue skies, fresh air, listening to the birds. I don't always even take my phone with me. Sometimes it's just that's my way of communicating with uh, the divine. Sometimes I just talk and listen and meditate while I walk, express gratitude in my own heart. And, head. and by the time I come back, I'm in a much better place to start off my day. And that's not negotiable. Like I'm telling you, nothing gets between me and my daily walks, nothing. And when that happens and people see that, you're modeling leadership, you're modeling behaviors that can really make a difference in people's lives. And I'm sure that's had a cumulative effect on you that's much different than when you just did it three times a week. Yeah, because number one, it's not something that I have to do. It's something that I want to do because I've seen the benefits. It makes me feel better. It's almost like a gift to myself because we need to practice self-care physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually because there's so many stressors in life. And you know what? If it's to be, it's up to me. I'm responsible for myself. I can't be blaming anybody else. And I'm serious. So I've done that. I've done other things in the emotional, mental, and spiritual aspect as well. But I just want to give you a simple example. But it's consistency, right? Yeah. I didn't do it just April and May and then got too hot. I don't want to walk. I've done it for a full 12 months. And I see the benefits. I'm healthier physically, mentally, and emotionally than I, better now than I was 12 months ago, even though the last 12 months have been really hard for all of us. Very hard. As the circumstances change with the pandemic, you were able to adapt. And I think that's a great model for how we should be approaching life. As people get vaccinated, the pandemic eases off a little bit. I'm, I'm not planning on changing this because now I've discovered a micro habit that is so good for me that regardless of what's happening, I'm going to continue doing it. Even if the stress level reduces, which hopefully it will, I'm not going to stop doing that or go back to three days a week because I see the benefits. Yes, it does take some discipline, but not as much as I thought. When you start eating healthier food, your body actually craves healthier yeah. food. It's kind of the same principle. Okay, and think about making up a bed. It's a simple thing, but when you do it at the beginning of your day, you've accomplished something. It's a positive aspect of your life, just doing something simple like that to start your day. And when you do it cumulatively, it becomes that micro habit that really has a lasting effect on just your attitude when you start your day. You know what else, Gary? I've learned to be flexible with that. Like sometimes because I'm busy, sometimes I don't have a full hour to do it. So I'll do two half hours. Ah. I'll do a half an hour at the beginning. And then when I have a break, you know, let's say between one and two o'clock, I'll do another half an hour. 
it doesn't have to be exactly the same every day. You know, I don't go for a walk in exactly the same area. I like visually, I like seeing different uh, neighborhoods and different. I mix it up a little bit, but the bottom line is it's a commitment and a gift to uh, my physical health, which also impacts my emotional and and uh, mental health. And it's simple. This is not, we're not talking about like brain surgery here. We're just talking about assess your life. I created a, what I call a personal health assessment in the uh, seven keys navigating a crisis, 20 questions, you know, five for physical, five for mental, five for emotional and five for spiritual health, where people can assess and see where they're at. And that actually was a trigger as to that I need to get a higher score in my physical health. My own personal assessment that I took myself, actually, (laughs) which I do every month. I take my own assessment at the end of every month to see how I'm doing and where do I need to make some, you know, course correction. I guess that's the best way to say it. Small stuff. So it's a scale of one through five. Five, I'm doing great. Four, I'm doing really good. Four, you know, three, I'm doing sometimes. If I score four and fives, or if you score, if you take the assessment, pat yourself on the back and say, I'm doing great. If you score yourself a three, that just means you're doing some of it, but there's room for improvement. However, if you score a one or a two, those are red flags. Those are directly impacting both your health, but also I believe your happiness as well. I can share the PDF with you, Gary, afterwards, and you can, you know, feel free to share it with your, uh, with your listeners afterwards. It takes two minutes to take the assessment, but it's of such great value long-term. When you do that on a regular basis, when you take that assessment on a regular basis, you're giving yourself feedback. And it's so easy to be caught up in this world and pulled into things that may not be as healthy for you, like working extensive hours that really decreases your productivity. This is a mechanism to do a reality check and say, okay, am I still on course? Am I still going in the right direction? No, you totally captured it, Gary. That's exactly what it's for. It, it takes two minutes, but it gives you a wealth of information. So as I start the new month, maybe I need to focus more a little bit on my mental health or my spiritual, or maybe maybe physically I'm doing okay, but emotionally I'm really struggling. So it's just an assessment that's easy to take that gives you a plethora of information. My thanks to Alaya Gugoras. If you'd like to learn more about Alaya, go to the show notes. And if you have a question or comment, go to unlabelleadership.com, click the message icon, and leave up to a one-minute message. Thanks to those who contribute to the show. Your contributions help with the cost of production. And mostly, thank you for listening. Until next time, lead on.